This is a podcast from the Sports Pro Insider Series. Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly. I'm the editor-at-large at Sports Pro. Do hope you're well and I do hope you're ready for another session from the Sports Pro Insider Series of Virtual Events. This one coming from our dive into the world of sports investment on the 17th of February and more specifically from a discussion about the sports tech ideas to invest in now. That's a chat we've had a little more briefly on the podcast in the past few weeks, but it will be covered in a lot more depth this time. Michael Long, the SportsPro Editorial Director, is the man leading the conversation, and he's joined by Deepan Parikh, a partner at Courtside VC, Meredith McFerrin, Chief Executive and Managing Partner at Drive by DraftKings, and Chip Bowers, President at Elevate. On the agenda for them over the next 50-odd minutes or so are the sports tech trends to watch in 2021, uh, what investors should look out for when assessing potential, how the pandemic has affected decision-making processes, how the panel go about their own business, what they look for in entrepreneurs and startups, and what they bring to the table other than capital, the opportunities that might emerge after COVID, and they'll also talk about some of the trends they see as overhyped sports tech they're more wary of investing in now that's all to come quick note before we start on the insider series itself Uh, it's being run on a monthly basis throughout 2021 and built around a different future focused sports industry topic each time the next one as we speak is on wednesday the 17th of march and it will be taking on some fresh ideas in monetizing sports consumption We've got speakers from the likes of AWS, the Miami Dolphins, the ICC and Formula One to discuss data gamification and the move beyond traditional linear broadcasts. SportsProInsiderSeries.com is where you need to go to register for free. If you join in live, you can make the most of the interactive platform to ask questions of the panellists and chat to peers from around the world. But you can catch up on demand with this event And every other session, which by my count is, oh, it's a lot of sessions since the middle of last year. All of that at sportsproinsiderseries.com. But anyway, let's get on with the matter at hand. I'm going to pass you over to our panel and to our moderator, Michael Long. Print, digital, events, podcasts, sports pro. Welcome to everyone joining us for this session. As Chris said, We're here today to talk about uh, ideas to invest in now. Uh, And specifically, we'll be discussing the uh, top sports tech trends, uh, startups and entrepreneurs to watch uh, in 2021, um, as well as what investors should uh, look out for uh, when assessing investment opportunities, um, and also how the pandemic has affected um, the decision-making process, the due diligence process, and, and the wider sports tech ecosystem at large. So joining us today, we have uh, three people who know sports tech and specifically VC funding uh, within sports tech, just about as well as anyone, certainly more than I do. So uh, it's an an honor and a privilege to introduce three 
the, the three we have with us today. First up, we have uh, Deepan Barak, who is a uh, partner at Courtside Ventures. We also have Meredith uh, McFerrin, who is the CEO and managing partner at Drive by DraftKings. Uh, and finally, last but not least, we have Chip Bowers, the president of Elevate Sports Ventures. Um, just by way of a, a bit of background, as, as Chris mentioned, so this session kind of spawns really from a feature that we at Sportsbro have been running uh, for the past couple of years, uh, not coincidentally, also titled Ideas to Invest in Now, where we profile 20 early stage uh, technology companies and, and emerging sports tech startups that we feel really should be on every uh, investor's radar. Um, if you've not seen our latest list, uh, please head over to sportsbromedia.com to find uh, the full list, um, the, the 20 companies and, and plenty more content around the theme of sports tech and investment um, as well. Um, so that's enough from me for now. Uh, let's get into it. Um, and first up, a question really for all three of our panelists, um, but starting with you, Meredith, if I may. Um, sports tech, at least as we define it here at SportsPro, <clears throat> is a bit of a catch-all term really for many, many things. It covers everything from kind of media and data services to fan engagement, e-commerce and ticketing, blockchain, automated content production and distribution, performance analytics, esports and gaming, connected fitness, virtual coaching apps, wearable tech. The list is quite possibly endless. Um, which areas of that whole ecosystem, the sports tech space, have you as an investor most excited right now and, and why? Right. Uh, great. First, Michael, thank you for having me. This is a great session and I'm uh, privileged to be on it. So thank you. Uh, you're right. The The space is expansive um, and exciting. We're actually uh, very bullish on many and in fact, all of those sub themes that you've mentioned. Uh, three in particular that we, we focus on specifically within Drive by DraftKings are sports and gaming platforms, um, media and fan engagement, and the area of human performance. We also have a, um, a big focus on data, which I'm sure we'll get into, uh, that we believe sort of fuels all three of those um, in very powerful ways, um, and increasingly so as we kind of uh, continue to advance technology. Reasons why we're focused on those are three big markets that are showing um, really strong growth, both you know in terms of the consumer adoption, but also uh, for brands and enterprise in the area of infrastructure. Uh, <clears throat> they uh, are just extremely compelling in terms of even what we've seen over the uh, last year with the COVID and the pandemic and the um, the push towards personalization um, in these experiences. And I think that that goes throughout each of those areas. So within gaming, we're seeing um, personalized experiences coming into sports betting, people betting on um, you know what they want, what they believe in, their favorite players and teams within human performance. It's all about personalization of data. Uh, your own data, your ability to um, improve, recover, perform at higher levels and understanding what to do and and when and how. And then within media and, um, and, and fan engagement, the ability to watch what you want, engage with the players that you most enjoy. So we're very bullish on all those three areas um, and for many of those reasons. 
great stuff. And Deepan, if I can come on to you next, what's uh, what are your thoughts? What 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 has has you most excited within the sports tech space right now? I know you invest in a few different areas. Yeah, I, so the core focus of Courtside, uh, you know, similar to Meredith, kind of how she views the world, and we, we spoke about this at length a couple of weeks ago, uh, is in three buckets, which is sports and media, fitness and wellness, and gaming. And gaming kind of takes two forms. One is more the video game esports side, and the other is as we look at real money gaming. And you know, we when we first launched our uh, our first fund in early 2016, late 2015, the goal was really to broaden the definition of sports. If you talk to VCs 10 years ago and you said, what do you think of sports? Most of them would say the same thing, which is we're huge sports fans, but we don't invest in sports. And part of the reason was a lot of the definition of sports was viewed in a very narrow lens of selling to sports teams and leagues. And so we intentionally, um, and I think I don't want to chip or, you know, I love to hear kind of your view on this, but Meredith, we've spoke about this in the past. Uh, we were intentionally trying not to say purely sports tech all the time because sports tech as catch all as it is, the challenge with that definition is that it makes a lot of people view the market more narrow. Whereas the way we are trying to see it is from a lens of all the different areas that the world of sports media, entertainment, performance kind of encompasses. And so when we look at kind of our core, three core buckets, uh, we're really thesis driven. So within each of those categories, uh, we have three or four key areas that we are simply trying to find companies within. So we are uh, nonstop laser focused on, you know, we, we keep iterating on that thesis based on new companies we see. Uh, but, you know, within, just give you a couple of examples, examples within sports and media you know you have a lot of the media infrastructure which we look at but we also spend a lot of time as i'm sure everyone else is right now around collectibles and so uh you know in fund one we were fortunate to be involved in a company called StockX, which kind of helped pioneer some of the early collectible side of, of sneakers handbags but in fund two we've focused really heavily around finding who's going to be the breakout of kind of the newer generation um fitness wellness we think a lot around uh, what the reinvention of the gym will look like. We look a lot around obviously athlete performance and then gaming. Uh, we've looked a lot at kind of publishers. And then we've also looked outside the US at who's gonna build kind of the, the future of sports betting and real money gaming. And so, you know, all very, very different buckets. So the next time someone says to you, uh, isn't sports too narrow? I think it's good to remind them that uh, none of us are investing purely in sports. We're investing in what the younger consumer is going to spend their time, money, effort, energy, and passions around for the next, you know, generation. Sure, sure. Um, and Chip, just to come on to you, ask ask you broadly the same question. Uh, obviously, what's exciting you most? What you're looking at in the sports tech space um, more broadly? But I know you're approaching it perhaps uh, slightly differently from from Deepin and Meredith, certainly. So, yeah, interested to get your thoughts. Yeah, thanks, Michael, and thanks again for having me, and thanks to Sports Pro Media. Uh, Deepin, I think you hit the nail on the head. The reality is, we've always viewed it at Elevate Sports Ventures as consultants for teams. We're really charged with helping people become smarter in terms of how they operate their business. Uh, we turbo boost their sales and marketing efforts, anywhere from ticket sales to partnership sales, but 
as operators, myself and a number of other members of our team, Al Guido, our chairman, have worked on the team side of the business. So we understand the operational aspect of what fans are looking for physically when they attend a sporting event, but also virtually what they're experiencing when they're at home. Uh, we call it the wake to sleep moment. What are they experiencing when they get up in the morning to when they go to bed at night? How are they engaging with similar fans or share their interests? You know, these are the things that we pay a lot of attention to. I've always viewed tech, not sports tech, in a way that what is working in the world around us and how does it apply to sports and entertainment? Because really that's how people are consuming technology, right? They're consuming it outside of the sports stratosphere. So the important thing is really understanding and appreciating how people are living their lives and how best to intersect that technology into sports and their other passion points. So, you know, we look a lot at data analytics. Uh, we have an insights team within our organization that really informs a lot of our decisions and the decisions that we make in conjunction with our partners, both on a domestic and a global scale, helps us with it, deciding how we're gonna do everything from dynamic to secondary ticketing pricing. Uh, we think through a lot of the process and the people needed to realize the vision that the tech provides us the insights on. So it's one thing to actually have a lot of information that you've gathered from your fan base and your core consumers. It's another to understand how to bring all that to life. So we really focus on how to capture that, that, that insight, uh, turbo boost the business by structuring an organization in a way that allows them to be more efficient and ultimately more successful. And so when we think about sports and entertainment, we view it that broadly because the intersection of sports and, and, and and entertainment happens on a daily basis. That intersection happens again, virtually and physically. So it's how do we bring brands into that conversation? How do we create platforms for them? Technology platforms, either via streaming or through social commentary. And how do we create community around the sports and entertainment experience in a way that allows people to feel like they're closer to each other, even if physically they're not next to one another. So we get brands to be part of that conversation to create a larger ecosystem to help them understand that, hey, look, there's a way to talk to the consumer in a way that really resonates, not in a way that you're trying to project your message, but more importantly, how the consumer and the fan wants to digest that information. So, you know, we pay a lot of attention to the evolution of tech. Um, we are we're big believers in it, obviously, with major operations in San Francisco. It's nice to be in Silicon Valley to be on the forefront of a lot of those conversations. Uh, but we're working really diligently to make sure our properties that we work with on a global basis understand the value of technology and really are intelligent about the utilization of the different platforms that they invest in. Sure. Um, we'll come on to the, uh, specifically onto the impact of the pandemic uh, on the sports tech space and, and how you guys go about business um, shortly. But just fundamentally, obviously, we're talking about the, the top line trends and sectors that interest you guys. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts on um, you know, investors are often talking about the importance of investing in, in people, not just a product or idea or service or solution. It's all about the people behind it who can really execute on that on that business plan, on that strategy, on that idea and, and scale it and with it with your help, obviously. So interested to hear what you guys look for in terms of qualities and attributes in an entrepreneur, in a, in a startup founder. What, what are you looking for and how are you going about um, you know, assessing the merits of their idea and, and uh, their pitches to you um, Meredith, perhaps you can say that. <clears throat> yeah, I'll, I'll start. I'm sure we all have a lot to say on this. Um, you know, from the outside, outset, I'm looking for three, three qualities, um, energy, empathy, and deep experience. And I think the deep experience we'll talk about in a second, but the energies, some call passion, but always from the outset, it's, it's 
how much do you bring to the table inside from yourself to solve this problem? You got to want, you got to understand it, empathize with it deeply and, and, and be able to ride the, you know, inevitable roller coaster ride of, of entrepreneurship to, to get to market and make that scale. So tremendous amount of energy. Second, the empathy piece. Do you truly understand this problem that you're trying to solve? Uh, so the deeper, the more experienced, the more into it they are, the more I believe that they actually will have the energy to take it across the finish line. And just experience. And the experience, sometimes that can be, you know, too <laughs> double-edged. You want the experience to understand the market that you're in, the hurdles. You, you want, however, to also bring a fresh perspective and a willingness to buck convention. Because uh, those are many of the entrepreneurs that we see that are actually on the frontier, challenging what people and what markets think is possible. So those three qualities are big ones. And there are certainly others in the pitch around tenacity and the ability to execute, head in the clouds, feet on the ground, selling the vision, motivating a team, all that kind of stuff. But those are a few. I'm, I'm sure Deepin has others. I won't uh, end, end ship. So I'll keep it there. Well, let's hear it, Deepin. What is uh, <laughs> <laughs> Meredith did a great job. She, she covered a lot of it. I think this is the hardest part about the job. Uh, ultimately, you know, people always say there's this conversation between do you take an A team and a B market or, a, you know, A market and a B team? And, and every year, every few months, it feels like the conversation constantly changes. The truth is it's dependent on what stage you come in. Right. And so it, in a lot of stages where we come in in the really early days where it's it's seed, a little bit of Series A, in some cases we've backed founders before products ever even launched. If if they have a background and experience, um, we're looking for for a lot of the qualities Meredith mentioned. I think that the most important to us is not always domain expertise, but probably just their understanding uh, of the industry or the model they're going after from a unique lens. Um, you know, oftentimes w w sports is an incredible industry, uh, but I think in sports, there are a, certainly a lot of folks who have been in it for a long period of time who perhaps think the status quo will remain the status quo. And that, that is actually a, a good thing in a lot of cases. In a lot of cases, when you're thinking about new business models, that's not necessarily always the case. And so, you know, it's a fine line. In a lot of cases, you want someone who comes from the industry, who simply has learned that something is inefficient and they wanna exploit that. And then you have sometimes people who have never been in the industry, who simply say the way it's being done is wrong. And I wanna go and I wanna build something that is absolutely gonna blow this entire space up. And so. We are, you know, we have a pretty rigorous kind of due diligence process. Anytime we uh, we rate a deal, we kind of work backwards. We we rate a deal as kind of our partners. The 19 point kind of list we go through, you know, market size important, products important, but then you start diving into founders, right? There is founders. You have the domain expertise. Uh, Founder market fit is something that we've looked a lot recently. It's, you know, there's always a new term uh, coming out, your product market fit. But the founder market fit is really fascinating because that speaks a lot to what Meredith talked about, which is kind of passion. 
do they embody the brand? When you look at someone building a business in fitness, I believe you need to embody the brand if you are selling consumer. If you do not, you can't build nearly as much authenticity. And having a consumer look to the founder or the CEO of the business is really important. And so it may not be as important perhaps in uh, certain areas of sports or in certain areas or other verticals, but fitness, for example, it matters a lot. Also matters who your customer is. If you're going consumer versus enterprise side makes a really big difference. So bottom line, there's no set answer uh, other than the fact that we, uh, it is an area that we dive into so heavily. Um, and COVID has only changed our process uh, because where you could previously probably grab beer with someone and get to know them on a personal level, uh, Zoom maybe doesn't allow you to have as much depth, but there's more frequency. So you can get to know someone faster. Uh, it just takes a little bit. Um, kind of more conversation to really unravel. Interesting, yeah, yeah. Um, and just to flip it on uh, that, that question really, looking at it from the startup's perspective, what do, what do you guys as investors bring to the table besides growth capital? Is it, is it that knowledge and connections and operational expertise, does it vary as you're saying, Deepin, presumably no one size fits all here, but you know, assessing what that, that, that particular entity needs, I suppose, or that entrepreneur needs to, to be backed in the right way. But interesting to hear, you know, yeah, what, What's your pitch to them ultimately? What are you bringing to the table? Yeah, I mean, I think Ch Chip's perfect to talk about this given how uh, in-depth their knowledge is in working with a lot of the companies. I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts, not to put you on the spot, Chip, but you guys provide a lot of value <laughs> yeah. when you getting involved. No, I, I appreciate that, Deepin. I mean, I think, look, for us, we're, we're, I had the luxury of working with Joe Lacob, uh, who's the owner of the Golden State Warriors of Venture Capitalists. And one of our mantras when I was there is always bet on people and certainly be willing to bet on yourself. And so, you know, what we try to get people to understand is that what we want to bring to the table for them is a commitment to them uh, and a belief in what they're building. So we do a lot of diligence starting with the people. So back to what do you look for and the characteristics of an entrepreneur? You know, we look for people and Meredith said all the things that I would have said, um, and she's she's absolutely right. We look for people that ultimately are likable because we're a very forward facing business. So it's important to us that people are uh, approachable, they're empathetic, they're accountable. Uh, they certainly are able to not only craft a vision, but articulate that vision in a way that gets people excited uh, and creates a lot of enthusiasm and buy in. Uh, we think it's certainly important to, to get people to see how they can alter their business. I think you've got to have people that are self-reflective. Uh, you, you've got to have in today's time be nimble. So in order to do that, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, are we on the right path? And really be honest with yourself. Uh, back to that accountability point, uh, be accountable to yourself and to your team to say, are we doing the right thing? And are we doing it in a way that would make you know myself proud, my family proud, and my organization proud in that order? And if you can, if you can accomplish that and check those boxes that then, then I've got the trust in you that, you know, even if we hit some bumps in the road, there's going to be smooth sailing at some point. Um, you know, we, we are an organization that wants to be creative in our thought process, and that creativity has to come through in an authentic way. So as Deepin pointed out, you've got to live the vision. You've got to be able to showcase your ability to deliver on the promise. And so as, as we think about how we're getting people to view our entrepreneurial spirit, it's important that they see us as what we are, which is a startup, uh, hungry, um, energized and passionate, as, as Meredith said. Uh, these are all the things that aren't you know, taken lightly. And certainly you can see right through it if you don't live and breathe it every day. 
So for us, for teams especially that have been entrenched in a certain way of operating, what's been refreshing during the pandemic is that a lot of people have been forced during this um, time of uncertainty uh, to really be, um, again, uh, introspective in terms of are we thinking about things the right way? If there was ever a time to hit reset on our business, now is it? Who are we going to help us craft that vision and why should we believe in them? And if we don't showcase and really, I think, buy into all the things that I just addressed uh, in a very organic way, then I think we lose uh, the ability to really resonate in a way that can help drive people's business because their belief in us and trust in our vision is the difference between success and failure uh, because there are going to be times that we question it individually and collectively so our ability to to have you know buy-in is is really important sure well let's let's talk a bit more about the pandemic because here we are sat in you know a particularly um, interesting unique uh, unprecedented moment in time albeit we've been you know in this position for 10 months almost a year now which is incredible to think um but we've got a question here from the audience so i think it, and it relates to what you've been saying chip i guess um question from sam um do you think that COVID 19 has led more teams and venues to value their video content and social media communication more highly uh, this is an area that sam sam's company works in so he's certainly hoping so um but it's obviously one of the one of the things that we have seen across sport generally is this shift in thinking and, and really prioritizing you know that that uh, digital connection with the virtual fan and how how important that is um do you think that it, yeah do you think that's led to a shift in in mindset and how they view uh, the, these properties view uh, video content and social media communication yeah, I, I, 100%. I, I think the thing that what I'm anxious to see is how people reallocate their budgets to put more money into content. Um, I think a lot of teams, you know, here's here's the big misnomer. Uh, teams are typically large global brands, but they're very small businesses. And I think a lot of people don't quite understand that. And so when you think about an operating or an OPEX budget inside the team dynamic, a lot of times money is spent on things that, you know, don't have anything to do with content. You know, they think they could put a camera and capture some live footage or players out in the community and that will actually check the box. And the reality is it has to go much deeper than that. So, you know, I think more people are looking at their their audio videos you know, studio. Uh, how are they, again, creating that convergence between sports and entertainment, showing the players in a different light, showing the organization in a different light, uh, make it less salesy, if you will, and more engaging uh, in a way that people actually um, would view what they're seeing through the lens of the team, you know, platform a lot like they would view any other platform that they're engaged with, a, ble a bleacher report, um, you know, from an entertainment perspective, um, or even from a retail perspective, when you deep had mentioned this earlier, a platform like GOAT, which is just tremendous if you're a sneakerhead, right? You go to GOAT, there's a lot of different sneakers there. You see a lot of intersection now between player fashion, what fans are wearing, how do you weave that into your own retail operation, you know, that takes really engaging content to showcase those products, that experience in a way that actually gets people to have a longer term interaction with that particular piece of content. So my hope is that that happens. My belief is that it will. Certainly we're consulting people to get them to understand how to do that. I think the other thing that we're finding from a monetization standpoint is when you think about your partnerships, you know, it gives you a chance to take some of these big brands that are actually really good at creating their own engagement through their social platforms finding ways to find that point of intersection so that it's not solely an investment in the physical experience, but that you can truly monetize the, the content digitally.
Uh, I think that's been a miss for a lot of folks. They haven't quite figured it out yet, but it's forced them to get a lot smarter. And Meredith, what are your thoughts? Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think what's been um, super exciting over the last year, despite its, you know, it, it, all of its challenges, has been innovation in the, in the content space. And I think, you know, of course, when sports was shut down, it um, it, it forced the properties and all of us to think about other ways to connect, to engage, to um, maintain a relationship with the things we love and the, the, the teams we love. And so, you know, what happened there, I think was, you know, this, what Chip was saying is, is a look into the lives of many of these athletes and these teams into the locker room, um, into the individuals and, and um, what, they um what they were doing you know when they weren't able to play at you know at at an open or at you know at one of their favorite games and um and so i think this this really gave an opportunity to uh bring more innovation into content to drive social media interactions with fans directly and uh and so i think it's it's very exciting um, I don't think it's going back to the way it was. And I think um, there's going to be a, a lot more connectivity going forward, a, a real integration of, of physical and digital and social media and content driving um, experiences, both outside of the game, during the game, after the game, all of that. So um, I, I very much think that there's big opportunity here and we look at it very seriously from an investment standpoint. Help us spread the word about the Sports Pro podcast. Subscribe, like and share our content on social. Join the conversation on Twitter with the hashtag SportsProPod. And if you're enjoying our work, why not leave us a rating and a nice review on your podcast platform of choice. And if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email, podcast at sportspromedia.com. The Sports Pro podcast, we're listening to. I guess it's a, an interesting one for you guys, obviously, look, when you're assessing these investment opportunities off the back of such a, you know, unprecedented event like a global pandemic and what it's done to the sports industry is, is really looking for things that are going to out, outlive and outlast this pandemic that are going to be applicable for, for many years to come. So, um, Deepan, I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on um, the extent to which this 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 crisis, this uh, global pandemic has, has opened up new opportunities really for you guys, not just perhaps consumer facing opportunities and the change in, in the way in which sports content and uh, participation has, has evolved. But um, some of those solutions that are, you know, perhaps um, less public facing that are more applicable to the, the business side of things to, to how businesses operate. Are there, there going to be opportunities off the back of this um, that are, that are going to yeah, outlive, the, outlive the crisis and, and we're particularly interested? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of uh, key areas that we all look at have been accelerated by five, if not 10 years, uh, in the matter of one year. Uh, I don't know if anything has happened during COVID uh, that was purely new. I think there were things that were already in motion that certainly have been incredibly accelerated. Uh, you know, when you have hundreds of millions of people sitting at home uh, with a bit more time on their hands, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, it creates a lot of uh, interest on the part of simply just new entertainment, right? New entertainment, uh, having to adapt to time. So 
you know, we, we look at it from the lens of each of our verticals. When we look at sports, collectibles were already in motion. You look at what GOAT, StockX, um, you know, a lot of larger players like an eBay had been doing for a long time. The collectibles market is something we've looked at for the past four years. But when you have a lot of people sitting at home at their parents' house or their own homes, and they realize that there's value in the cards that they had as a child, that accelerates a lot of things. If you look at the amount of inventory that has simply been placed online, that is a function of people simply having more time on their hands early on in the pandemic. Sports obviously was hammered really hard, but consumer demand and interest in sports never waned. When we look across the board of sports fans, in fact, I think the pent up demand to looking at what happened with sports betting is a clear indication that people were dying to simply be able to get any form of sports back that they could either bet on or simply just watch. And so, you know, we, we see a lot of what has transpired over the last 10, 11 months um, feels, you know, wrong to say this at times, but as a net positive for a lot of areas that we all focus on, obviously not culturally, not, you know, as societal, but from a standpoint of the verticals in terms of the accelerated growth, that is something that simply has, we have never seen before and absolutely never expected. Um, I think just like everyone else on on the Zoom when March and April hit, uh, we all went into uh, triage mode and ensuring that a lot of uh, companies that we were already involved in had the right framework, had the capital necessary, had a lot of the resources they needed. Um, but when things emerged in May and June, um, I think it was, for us, it was the most active year we've ever had. Uh, we made nine new investments in 2020. Um, and so I think, you know, our, our typical pace is, is less than that, uh, but it was a function of opportunities um, and founders in a lot of cases coming out and starting to build things out of necessity or out of areas of being opportunistic. And in terms of the, uh, when you're surveying the, the landscape really, where do you guys, there's a question here from the audience uh, for all three of you, so we'll put it to all three of you, but obviously all you, you're all based in the US. A question from Derek Stewart saying, um, are, you, are you focusing your investments on in, within the US borders or are you looking at exciting opportunities in the UK and Ireland, for example? We have another question from a member of the audience about uh, perhaps lesser known markets in Africa, for example. Um, you know, how, how uh, geographically spread is your, is your focus for investment? I don't know who wants, wants to take that one first. Uh, well, I'll just say briefly, uh, for, for us being a sector-focused fund in this space, we don't uh, have a geographic limitation because I think um, that's one of the advantages to, to focus thematically and within a sector is that you really want to look globally uh, to understand what's going on in, in different markets, how it affects and, and drives um, our views in the one we're primarily in. So we are primarily US focused, but we're very, very attentive to what's going on globally, understanding um, those markets, those opportunities, what models can transfer, what signal we're getting from one market that leads us into a better view and understanding of another market and where the best investment is. Uh, Deepin, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, I, I think we, we take a similar approach, which is uh, we invest globally. Uh, I think it's it's very hard to be 
sector or vertically focused, stage focused, and geographically focused. And so we go where we believe are the best founders and opportunities that we've invested in uh, India, uh, Norway, Germany, South America, uh, Canada. I mean, we, we will look all over. We've looked heavily in Africa. Um, you know, our, we have certain guardrails in place when we invest outside the U.S., uh, as a fund in terms of who we invest alongside. So we, we never tend to go in entirely solo as a fund. Um, but yeah, we, we believe in sports is not uh, geographically focused at the end of the day, neither is fitness and gaming. In fact, if, if there are three areas that are global in nature, it's probably these three. Um, nice. And so we, we will look wherever we believe are the best opportunities. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I, the pandemic's shown us anything. It's that the world is getting smaller. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's ability to connect pretty easily now. Uh, we, we've got uh, partnerships in, in Manchester with Co-op Live. Uh, we've got relationships with uh, EuroLeague Basketball and others uh, on a global scale. And, and yeah, there's a lot of tech companies that, that we're looking at globally that we want to figure out how either to invest in ourselves or certainly to take to some of our partner institutions to see if they have an interest in investing in them. You have to also make sure that they're culturally relevant, right? So what may apply to a fan experience in one culture may not necessarily be what someone else is looking for in another country and another culture. So, you know, you have to be really thoughtful about what resonates in that particular market. You know, back to something Deepin said earlier that really resonated with me when you think about you know, things like Goat and other platforms and really the ease of purchase. You think about how people now physically go back to watching games. Uh, their experience virtually of the fan engagement has been one that ultimately has allowed them to purchase things so efficiently and so easily and at the touch of a button that that shouldn't necessarily change because they're going from their living room to a stadium or to an arena. And so we're getting people to think more thoroughly about the stuff that's been in existence. How does that ramp up and then get put into the, the physical experience? So if you look at another one of our partners, which is uh, Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, where the Seattle Kraken NHL team will play, you know, Amazon is instituting their touchless concessions. So not new, but certainly new in a lot of stadium experiences. So how do fans go in, actually be able to grab an item and walk out and have it automatically go against, you know, their Prime account? Um, that, that, that same type of integration actually can happen pretty much anywhere globally uh, through retail, scan of the phone, immediately debit from your account. So these are things that have been in existence that you know, a lot of different startups are really thinking about how to be more thoughtful and what that end user you know, outcome is looking like. Um, and, and DraftKings is another fantastic example of that, right? Where people can bet globally take in different types of content and really feel like the betting community is really aligned in terms of their own experience around that particular contest or, or event. Sure. Just to, just to move on slightly, we've got another question here from the audience from uh, Anatoly. Thank you uh, for your question. Um, talking about the, the exit for, for VCs, um, how, do, how do funds cope with a relative lack of exit options for many subsectors in sports tech? Um, he uses the example of uh, electronic performance tracking, uh, where every second startup, he says, uh, will sell the company to, to, uh, to Catapult. Um, and obviously, a company like Catapult can, uh, is, is buying startups, but even keeping one merger acquisition per year is hard for them, um, apparently. How, how do you think about the exit? How do you cope with the, the relative lack of exit options, to put it in uh, words? Who, who wants to take that? 
I, I guess I, um, I would, I would, I would flip this to what we're seeing. I mean, even when you look at sort of the enormous influx of, of SPACs in this market now, driving a lot of liquidity, a lot of options, and I'm not sure I, um, I see the lack of exit um, opportunities as a as a big hurdle. We're seeing a ton of activity, a ton of growth, um, a really in exciting inflection point across all of these themes that both Deepin and I have mentioned here and that and that Chip have, has talked about. And I think there's actually increasing liquidity and, and optionality in the market around M&A, around, you know, now going public. And, and so I think there's a lot of options out there. And um, I would say I'm pretty bullish about what 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 that looks like, I think, in, in some specific areas, you know, if, if there's limited exits yeah we do look at that around the prior to making an investment we'll look at what are the multiples what are the exit opportunities we don't want to get in a you know an investment where there's just one because that 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 doesn't bode well um for what that exit might look like but for the most part where we are invested we feel pretty strongly that there's going to be um opportunity going forward over the next couple of years yeah i mean i I'd add to that. Um, it, I think it again comes back to the framing of what is kind of sports investment. If we if we say purely sports tech in certain areas, perhaps if we start looking at gaming, there's a tremendous amount of liquidity that has transpired. Fitness, tremendous amount of liquidity that's transpired. Collectibles. Uh, when we think about media infrastructure, a tremendous amount of liquidity. So. I think one of our main criteria when we go into investing in a company is we're never trying to think of the exit outcome, but we definitely heavily evaluate exit opportunities. Um, I think that is something that is paramount to any investor coming into a deal, especially in the early stages. Not that you believe that there has to be uh, a way for you to get out, but more so, is there a potential acquirer of this business? And if not, it's a potential acquirer, do they have the path to build a multi-billion dollar company? I think for a long time in, in sports, uh, you know, if you looked five, six years ago in sports, people would point to and say, well, show me $1 billion company mm -hmm. in sports. We, we just get this all the time. And the truth is, what's the definition of sports? If you think broadly, there's several. But at that time, people would point to and say, hey, Bleacher Report built an unbelievable business and they sold for hundreds of millions. They couldn't even get, like, it, it's a it's a fallacy that sports businesses cannot be really huge when you think about it from the broader lens. Um, and so we, we do not, I mean, look at the number of SPACs that have come out where people are sports centric. Now, will they buy sports business? Unlikely, or, or if they do, it may not be only sports, but that's why everyone leaves a, a broader mandate. I think that the way we continuously try and preach is stop focusing only on one area of sports and think more broadly because that opens up the ecosystem a lot. Sure. Uh, we've got a session for anyone interested uh, coming up after this on SPACs specifically. So you could do tune in for that if you want to uh, to understand a bit more about what they're all about and um, what's, what's behind the emergence of, of SPACs. So maybe on slightly then, I guess related slightly to the to those um, exit opportunities, that that question, the discussion we've just been having. But um, in terms of the 
perhaps the most overhyped sports tech trends or products out there today. Um, is there anything you're wary of investing in or perhaps that you would look at and say, look, that's not, that's not right for us right now for whatever reason? Don't know who wants to take that question, but uh, just to flip it on its head away from what's the hottest trend, what's, what's perhaps not right now? I, I don't know that, you know, I could be absolutely wrong. <laughs> I'll start there. I just, you know, virtual, virtual reality to me has still got a long way to go. Mm -hmm. I, I think everybody talks about it like it's, it's here and it's not. Uh, it's not that the content's not good. It's not that the, the philosophy behind virtual reality isn't sound because it is. I understand why it, it has a lot of momentum behind it. I just think at the end of the day, you know, especially today, right? I'm a big believer that coming out of this pandemic, we've got to find ways to re-engage, right? So I'm a big believer in, look, I get the second and third screen uh, experience all for it. I'm a big believer in how that plays into the overall fan or consumer experience at home, as well as in the venue. However, I think if you're paying ticket prices to go to a game, to see it live and in person, when you're only one of 18,000, 20,000, 50,000, it's a special time, right? And you've got to be in the moment. So how you use that to create a more efficient experience, shorter bathroom lines, concession lines, faster experience at retail, a seamless experience in grab and go concessions, those kind of things, parking, ticket, future ticket purchases, those are all key. But I, I still think there's a lot of, of figuring out to do in terms of the fan experience around virtual reality when I still think the communal aspect of fandom is still really hard to beat. Two things bring people together in society, tragedy and sports, right? <laughs> and, and I think the reality is when you have a shared passion with someone that outside of that venue or outside of that contest or event, you may not have anything else in content uh, in, um, uh, that you guys could agree with. Um, but the reality is that that one thing brings you together. And so virtual reality to me prohibits that from taking place. And I still think people are having a hard time getting over the hump on that. Um, so that would be the one that I would say has long-term opportunity for sure. But in terms of where we sit today, I still think it's relatively overhyped. Mm -hmm. Can I, I just jump in on that? For um, first of all, a hundred percent agree, and um, especially on the on the benefits of the live experience and in inherent community. I think anything anything over the last year, we've become all so much more um, just attentive to how how meaningful those community and live experiences are, and how much we miss them. On the VR front, I uh, also agree and would point to that one. One thing I think I was surprised about is um, that there wasn't more innovation around this during this time. And maybe there is, and we just haven't seen it yet, and let's hope so. But if if we thought about VR applications more um, around, you know, could we get out of the clunkiness of the hardware design that seems to be so inhibiting? and get to a place where it's a little more elegant, the UI is a little bit better, and we could use them for um, other applications, for instance, like remote training, um, you know, when we don't have coaches right there, setting up the full surround sound of what that experience might look like, and then being able to, um, you know, engage in it remotely. So to help with remote training and optimization, all of that. So, um, so those are, that's one, area where I think VR could, um, we could possibly see some, you know, additional innovation and hopefully over the next few years get 
get to a better place. Yeah, you guys aren't the first people to tell me this about VR. So Deepan, you have to tell us something else that's not VR, that's perhaps, <laughs> you know, that, that the jury is still out on um, in sports tech. Yeah, um, a couple areas. I think, you know, looking maybe at, at fitness, uh, I would say the the notion that people are not going back to gyms or physical locations is crazy to me. Um, I do believe that there is now a hybrid. I believe that people have a lot more optionality now, but just like people wanting to go back to live events, I think we we oftentimes forget that we do revert a bit back to the norm uh, when things are settled down. Now, this is something like has never happened in our world and certainly not in my lifetime. Uh, but I do believe that there's a lot of value of simply going back to a place. May not go five days a week, may not go seven days a week. You may also want to use your Peloton or your Tonal in conjunction with it. But I believe that the online and offline is being severely overlooked. And I think companies that can actually adopt to both, like you look at a Peloton, they've done an unbelievable job of getting that Peloton in your apartment building, your hotel and everywhere else. Why? Because they want you to use it and have optionality to use it wherever you are. I believe we will see a lot more companies that are focusing on both uh, catering to you wherever you are, whenever you want to use it, uh, and not focus just simply on your in-home experience alone. Uh, Michael, one other thing that that you know I would point to that it, just in in the betting space that we've been paying attention to, but feel like is just not there yet is the whole peer-to-peer -peer space, which has got hype and is kind of exciting. And you know, uh, but in the U.S., just still seems like you know the hurdles around. Peer, peer, peer vetting and the wire act and all of that just doesn't allow us to to get there in, in full steam. So, but there are these 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 areas within um, certainly with gaming that we just see consumers leading the way and 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 the interest globally and all of that. So, you know, that's where again the the global U.S. look is really helpful to understand what what trends may be um, overhyped for one market because of regulations or it's not um, easy to to execute, but we're seeing um, evidence of, of great demand um, uh, in, in other markets where the structure is different. Yeah, I, I think the other thing that I would add to that is, as we talk through fitness specifically, um, it, it's interesting to me the, 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 the promotion of and or monetization of player or athlete fitness in the eyes of a fan. I think mm -hmm. it's great for internal insights in terms of how people who make key decisions on draft picks or trades or, you know, player transfers or, or you name it, whatever is happening on a global scale. But the ability to actually show a fan in the moment how fast a guy is running up and down the court or how high he's jumped or how many minutes he's logged is greatly exaggerated. The reality is there's a lot of, you know, um, sensitivities around how players are viewed if a guy thinks that the fan believes he's dogging it up and down a court or up and down the pitch, right? So um, nor do you necessarily, and I'm sure there's a lot of value in prop betting specifically around what's going to happen next. And if you don't, if you're yeah. like, getting information around a player that's playing at 70% of his capacity, 
that sways a lot of online betting. There's a lot of things that there's actually a unforeseen domino effect that, that, that comes out of that. So I think where a lot of people say wearable tech for players in game is an opportunity. I, I think it's only an opportunity in terms of how you take that information to allow people to get better. And it's meant to be in, in, in you know, a conversation that only happens within the walls of that organization is not necessarily meant to be shared with the public. We're just not ready for that yet. Th that degree of transparency is just not there. Guys, unfortunately, I think we're, we are running out of time and possibly, uh, you know, um, almost done. And we have this other session starting very shortly. So anyone in our audience, please uh, do shift over to that session when it begins. But Chip, Meredith and Deepan, thank you very much. Uh, you, here's yeah. Chris. Well, if you wouldn't mind, we still have a few minutes and there's actually a okay. question, Mike. There's actually a question from the audience that I think is quite interesting. So I'm going to spend some time and throw it out there too. Don't me, Chris. That's fine. Yeah, well, I'm just letting you know, Mike, that uh, it's been a great conversation. We don't have to cut it off quite yet. But uh, there's definitely one I kind of want to bring up. And I think it's a little bit about some of the content that we – discussion we were talking about earlier. And, you know, the question comes from Constantine. And, you know, for our panelists, you know, what was your um, reaction to the Nickelodeon NFL wildcard game and what potential other types of – partnerships do you see um, to reach new audiences coming forward? So I, I guess, you know, we can throw it to Meredith, given you guys uh, do work with the NFL from the DraftKings perspective. I would just be curious to know what your initial reaction was to seeing slime on the football field. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to actually punt on that one because I, um, I, I'm sorry to say, because I'm, I'm sure that there's a really interesting DraftKings perspective on it. But as you know, we're independent from DraftKings, so, um, and I haven't been quite as focused on that, so maybe I'll punt on that to one of the other panelists. Well, I'll take it. I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> I thought it was one of the more innovative on-screen experiences we've seen in a long, I mean, literally to me, and I, and I may be over-exaggerating this, it was the first down line in football and then this, I mean, literally, I thought it was that great in terms of engaging a younger fan base, getting people to see the game differently. I thought it brought a lot of fun uh, to the game itself. Uh, the amount of social interactivity around it was tr tremendous. Uh, I, I seldom, if I'm, if I'm locked in, even if there's a college football game on multiple ESPN pla platforms, seldom do I switch it around. As soon as I heard about that on social media, I immediately went to Nickelodeon and watched the rest of the game. I just thought for if you're trying to attract young fans, uh, what better way to do it than having a lot of fun around the game itself? Um, it was so interactive. It, it literally jumped to the screen. So I, I give the NFL, I give Nickelodeon, uh, I give a lot of folks a lot of credit for being innovative and taking a chance because we don't get enough of that in our business. Uh, and I hope that they've set forth a course that says, look, it's okay to step out there. We're not going to get everything right all the time but you're not going to have a lot of fun if you just stay, stay status quo. So I, I applaud uh, the Nickelodeon efforts. And Chris, by the way, you have the greatest basketball poster in the history of mankind <laughs> behind you on the wall there. So in a Zoom world where everybody gets a chance to see people's homes, you got to appreciate wings with Michael Jordan in the back. It only, it only took my wife about six years before uh, she allowed me to put it up. And, you know, I explained <laughs> if we're doing these type of events, I've got to sportify uh, my man cave. So, yeah, I agree. Best poster uh, in sports. Um, it took a while to do it for sure. Well, well I, I'm jealous because I've tried for years and still have not been uh, successful in getting my wife to let me put it up in the house. So <laughs> I applaud you. Nice job. 
Yeah, she, she's patient. What about you, Deep Ben? Before before we ended, do you have any particular thoughts on the, the Nickelodeon activation? Yeah, I mean, you know, not not necessarily working directly with uh, Nickelodeon itself or on the NFL side. It, it speaks to the audience, right? I think I, I'd give an example of something a lot of people on this call are probably familiar with. You look at something like NBA Top Shot, or you look at what's happening in a lot of other businesses. It simply is appealing to a younger audience that the leagues, media companies, teams, and a lot of other players do not necessarily treat as their core demo today. It is a demo that they want to appeal to more. And so when you think about what Nickelodeon did, it was really brilliant. One, they have the rights, which allows them to do it, which is really important, but they were far more um, progressive in their view of wanting to appeal to a younger audience and simply, I mean, w when you look at what they did, it, it was complicated. Like I can't imagine that was an easy undertaking by any means, but you saw the success of what they did in a game. And then they, they did it, I believe twice now. Right. And you saw the engagement, but it, it comes back to something Chip had mentioned early on in the call, which is you can't just layer on technology and expect a younger audience to come. What they did though was the authenticity and the content at the end of the day. And the fact that it was relatable to a younger audience, I think will drive a ton more value long-term. So all these brands, leagues, media companies are, are thinking about how they appeal to the next generation. And I think it's gotta be in the form of innovation, but heavily in the form of the content itself. And Chris, I guess I would just add one thought additional to that comment, which is just, you know, the, the use of multiple multiple media properties the again back to that personalization theme even by segment you know figuring out how do we think about our content differently how do we think about our media differently segmenting what goes to whom when how this is just a classic perfect case of figuring that out and like chip said being willing to experiment and um you know and and execute on 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 that thesis which is super exciting the sports pro podcast is published by sports pro media the producer is ed dixon